The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen May, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are, Alan... The Money, the Money Cafe. Cafe. Are you again, Stephen? Two in a row, mate. Two in a row? Two in six days. Two in six days. I feel like we've got nothing new to say. And I've been on a five-day road trip trying to think of things I can talk about today with you. You could have gone a long way in five days. Where'd you go? Uh, I went to Canberra and I went to Sydney and I visited nine of the worst and biggest uh, private casino clubs in Western Sydney, all those giant clubs like Penrith Panthers and Bankstown Sports and the Rooty Hill RSL and the Reevesby Workers Club. Because I've been bagging them for years and I'd never visited, so I thought... Uh, I so did you, did you stand up in the pokies' rooms and give them a speech? Well, no, no. Addressing I'd, down? I'd sneak in you... at 9.30 and take photos of people chain-smoking, being hand-delivered beers and on the slots. And I would say, is this a great vision for uh, Western Sydney to have a giant casino club offering this service? Shut it down. Come on, Chris Minns, do something. Yeah, it's just the general, you know. It's quite good, though, actually. I went to this breakfast yesterday, the, the Wesley Centre Easter breakfast, and uh, John Howard was in the audience. And the, the head of Wesley's, uh, Stu, got up and actually said in front of John Howard, you should read Stephen Main's Twitter feed. There's all this great stuff bagging all the big pokies clubs in the West. So I thought, excellent. You know, six points. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you, Stu. <laughs> sausage roll. So, uh, sausage roll. <laughs> And Tim Costello sat next to John Howard and then went and had a chat to, to uh, Perite afterwards. So, um, so pokies reform is on yeah, in right. the world's most pokey-saturated city. So while you were gallivanting around the, uh, the high spots of Western Sydney, Stephen, uh, the Reserve Bank put up interest rates. Um, no, they did not. They didn't Sorry. put up interest rates. They, they paused right. for the first they time for the in first 10 time months. In, in 10 months. So that was... Um, and the governor uh, is singing deal. for his supper at the press club today. Yes. And so by the time this is public, he will have uh, done his final I'm a great guy, don't sack me presentation to the press club. And he, Well, he won't say anything other than really what he said yesterday, I presume. A uh, bit more elaborate. So basically it's pause and assess, see what happened, see what the impact of their previous uh, 10 rate hikes has been. And uh, I reckon they'll need to pause for six months because it'll take that long for the impact to be clear uh, because it's all about the mortgage cliff and whether the um, whether that is a real thing or not. Mm. Um, but I think seeing housing prices turn this quickly because of the, the demand pressure from all the new students and migration coming back. If that keeps going, then I think we need – that's a bad sign. I think they need to prick the bubble in the housing s- sector and 10% fall probably from $10 trillion to $9 trillion probably wasn't enough in terms of the total value of residences in Australia from an affordability point of view. So, well, you, Are you talking about the fact that the house prices went up again yeah. in March? Too soon. Like if, if, well, if, yeah, but, but if interest rates are working, that wouldn't happen. 
It's possibly a dead cat bounce, as they say in the share market. Yes. So. Um, on account of what I'm talking about, the, the mortgage cliff, which is all these people coming off fixed rate mortgages 2% onto variable rate mortgages 5.5%. Um, and there's apparently 800 to a million, 800,000 to a million people do, doing that over the next 12 months. But they're all working. There's no em- employment issues, recession. So if you're working, you can service. Particularly know, if you haven't got a balance sheet issue with house prices that's crashing. Right, but that's so. true, but it, uh, it isn't it isn't the case that all of them are going to be untroubled. No. The question is what percentage of them, what percentage of a million people being so troubled that they have to sell the house yeah. equals uh, a bit of a flood of stock onto the market. Yeah. And that's what we haven't seen at the moment because there's been a 20% drop in volumes, much to the uh, exactly. concern of state treasurers who are addicted to uh, stamp duty and have suddenly found it's come off a couple of billion because the volume... Is not there because why would you sell in this environment? Um, so That's there's right, lack of stock being offered it. up because people there's very little distress selling and the developers are not building, so there's very little fresh stock coming on either. And then you've got builders going broke, not being able to deliver stock. So now um, the other thing that you want to talk about, which I would be interested in hearing about, is the AGM. Mini AGM season, there's just been a few of them, right? Yes, Um, well, this morning we had uh, the Centre Group AGM. Uh, Last year it was a hybrid meeting and I was able to lob about a dozen questions and string it out for a couple of hours and this morning they went to a strictly physical meeting. And that was your fault? It's my fault, yeah, that was at the Wesley Centre, the same place we had the John Howard breakfast yesterday. It's become the go-to place in Sydney for AGMs because everyone's scared of getting COVID in five-star hotels so they're all going to the church conference centre. In in Pitt Street opposite the Hilton Hotel. And that's where you came and and did your original 7.30 report story on me when I was running for the David Jones board in 2000. 23 years ago, it was all happening at the Wesley Centre. I did say to the Wesley people, this is the nu- I've had more experiences here than anywhere else, from grilling Lachlan Murdoch to talking to Gina Reinhardt to you, Charlie, me at David Jones. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the go-to place. And last week, I was hammering the AMP directors from Manningham online, lobbed about 15 questions. And I didn't even know this, but Extinction Rebellion were out the front oh. of the Wesley Centre. So you had the hybrid, and they copped a three-hour grilling because they had all the bank warriors that David Kingston, who's a magnificent rich lister shareholder activist who really gets in, into people. So they had three hours of debate, probably too much, you can argue, but you know the share price has gone from 15 to 1, so that, you know, 500,000 shareholders have sold out, just got off the register in the last uh, 18 years. So you can understand why they should cop a grilling and a 48% REM protest vote, 15% against the chair, Deborah Hazelton. But today at, at Centre Group... A pathetic seven pages of CEO and chairman reports saying nothing. Meeting hold done, done within an hour. Uh, new chair appointed, Alana Atlas. Another we should possibly point out Centre Group is the old, the old Westfield. Westfield. Yeah, so Brian Schwartz has uh, retired, will retire, and Alana Atlas is coming on board. It's another uh, Lowy family ally put in charge of Centre Group, so you won't be getting a Elon Musk look what all the inside documents show that the Lowys once did here at Westfield because it's another safe pair of family-friendly hands. So you've got a, you've got a nephew as the CEO, Elliot Rudosanov, and you've got long-term Westfield director in Alana Atlas, very close to David Gonski, the long-term advisor to... So it's still a bit of an in-house job, even though there's no Lowy family holding in there. But Alana is the new chair, and I hope she opens up to a hybrid next year. And they didn't even serve up... 
morning tea. They said to the shareholders at the end, look, you know, with COVID, we've, we've got a few little bags to give you and you can help yourself to tea and coffee. Now, they're not shutting down their food courts, for goodness sake, at Westfields across Australia. So why can't they just provide a plate of sandwiches to the shareholders? They are trying to make it a non-event so no one turns up. Because that's given, how they like it. They could have given them some dim sims from the food court. Correct, correct. So, I mean, I was at a packed breakfast at Wesley yesterday and no one was wearing a mask and no one's crook. So, you know, these companies that just strive to make their AGMs not events. I mean, I had a phone call from Santos, you know, when I was pulling up to the dog on the tocker box, you know, on the on the road to Gundagai yesterday and the Santos bloke rings up and says, are you coming to our AGM on Thursday? And I said, oh, is it a physical, is it a hybrid? He said, no, it's a physical AGM. And I said, well, I won't be going, mate, because it's in Adelaide and you've deliberately excluded me. And did he want you to go? No, he didn't want me to go. But if, if I was coming, <laughs> he wanted to know what I was going to say. And then I, I would say, well, I'll make it up on the day, mate. And who would, who would Santos rank you? Who, who was given the... Oh, the head of investor relations, I think, or right. the, the PR bloke. And then he, as soon as I said, I'm not coming, he goes, oh, we don't need to talk then. I said, see you later. I'm going to fill up the car and get, go and have a coffee at the tucker box here. So I'm half tempted to get back in the car and drive to Adelaide and give him a gobful for, uh, for not, I'm not being sure. inclusive and allowing online participation and voting at the AGM, which is what AMP did last week and the majority of ASX Your 100 car. companies do every year now. Your car won't make it, Stephen. It's, no, it I, needs I can only a service. so many it's, miles. It's, it does need a service. It's, 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 so, it's, um, done, it's done a bit too many. Now, listen, the other thing to talk about before we get into the questions is Donald Trump, who uh, has now been uh, arraigned on 34 charges, 34 felonies, um, uh, all of which appear to be um, uh, making a false declaration. Or, no, no, uh, 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 false... Falsifying business falsifying record, business records, which you can't it. do in the world capital of commerce. So hundreds of people get done in New York for this offence because they have to have the highest and best standards to be the world centre for capital and business. And if you look through the court records, hundreds of people get done for this crime every year. So good on them. And, and Shouldn't have taken do the so court long. records tell you what uh, usually happens to them, who the people uh, who get you, done for you this? You don't normally go to jail, but you get a charge and your reputation is suffered. So, But look, there won't be another court mentioned until December. He won't go to jail. So this is just an early dry run for the bigger ones, which will be uh, taking classified documents uh, Georgia trying to influence the election right and trying to cause an insurrection. I mean, they're the they're the they're, they're the, the pipeline. That's they're right. the pipeline of charges. This is just you know the uh, the, um, the bit like the club's New South Wales bloke who got who got sacked for talking about the premier's Catholic gut. I mean, there was actually a whole bunch of other stuff that happened first, and this was just a, a minor thing. So uh, Al Capone and tax tax evasion, you could you could equate. But. Um, What's interesting is that the single biggest thing that leads to criminal charges and jail terms for political leaders in the democratic world is campaign finance breaches. It's the fundamental, almost original sin of democracy is how do you win an election and have the money to do it? So they always come up with rules about who can donate, what you've got to disclose. It always puts a straitjacket on people just getting large chunks of brown paper bags from rent seekers who can help them get elected and do them favours. And political leaders come a cropper from Sarkozy down. There's been dozens and dozens of them who've gone down. And Trump is just the latest because he had to disclose these donations under the campaign finance rules and he didn't. And that was a breach of the law and he should cop that. 
Well, they're not exactly donations. This is kind of there's a bit of a wrinkle because it's money from him. Yeah, uh, but it's an expenditure. It's it an was, expenditure. It's, you that's have right. to disclose how much you, what you're spending on, and and you know. Yeah. And but, but also they falsi- he falsified company records by yeah. calling it something else yeah. so he, in the company records. I mean, what a tight he, – he, he was so tight. He should have just written a personal cheque and not run it through the Trump accounts. Of course. But he, again, he was uh, so, looking for the tax deduction on his Trump enterprise. What yeah. a greedy bugger. I know. That's so um, anyway, but uh, I can't see him winning now. He'll, he'll, he might win the primary, win the, win the nomination, but like Peter Dutton is discovering, nasty old white men – do not command no, this is America. a 50% this, this, majority. This is America. It's different. I know. He's lost three times in a row now in terms of putting himself up. He's, he's done with middle-class women in the cities. They, they are the swing vote that – and young people. There's just not enough angry old rural white blokes with guns to get to a majority in America to get him over the line in a it's possibly enough, enough angry white blokes with guns to, to cause a lot of damage to cause a lot of harm. Storm, storm a parliament or two but uh, know, not actually get to the old majority yeah um, first question is from Michael who says last week Stephen Maine said the economics of building is getting better only because it can't get any worse the disaster unfolding in housing has been coming since the government pumped steroids into it during the pandemic and now the question is is there anything they can or should do before more builders builders fall over well, I mean, I, the first thing I'm going to say here is I think that the Andrews government should have bailed out Porter Davis. I think they were systemically important for uh, housing construction in Victoria. And the, it's a bit like breaking up a marriage. You've got to assess the transaction costs of the failure of the company. And in this case, a lot of people not getting homes. You've now got fire bombings. And it's just so messy to liquidate a multi-residential builder and um, I think that Melbourne's the most expensive city in Australia to build in the CFMEU is the toughest here we've got all the labour shortages the supply shortages and I think uh, the, the government in Victoria has moved to cost plus on contracts so they're bailing out Transurban and Westgate Tunnel and North East Link and Metro Tunnel all over the shop with these generous cost plus agreements and all the poor buggers in the commercial sector with the traditional fixed price contracts just going under because the cost of doing everything has gone through the roof. Um, so you've got to get the labour in and then the supply chain shortages, I mean, brick costs and, you know, I've never seen a perfect storm like this for construction. Um, and, do, you think, um, do you think more, more builders will go broke? Look, I actually think we're probably over the hump in terms of quite a few small private guys have gone under, but this, this effect has been going on for a couple of years now. I mean, it basically started with COVID. Um, so I, 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 don't, I think we've seen the majority of what we're going to see, um, but I'm worried about the construction capacity of the nation because you're a young entrepreneur. I mean, who is going to start up a scaled building business now? I mean, they just, most of them go broke. I mean, even Daniel Grollo, they carve up the family empire Daniel, son of Bruno, takes the ongoing construction business. Reno, the other brother, says, I'll take the property holdings, you know, because a good construction company will always have a bit of a land bank and investments. And, of course, so Reno's side still rich list is worth two or three hundred million and Daniel's gone broke. Barangaroo. So there's always a contract somewhere, particularly a fixed price contract, that will send you under. And even the Grollo family construction company in Victoria, the biggest, built most of the landmarks in Melbourne from Crown Down, World Trade Centre, you name it, Jeff Shed, um, gone. 
and now Porter Davis Pro Build. So you know, I wouldn't be encouraging anyone to take the risky business of construction. Yes. Omar says, what's your take on the fact that some governments, particularly the Brazilians recently, are moving away from having the US dollar and trading with their own currencies or other currencies other than the US dollar? What is the overall effect and what does it mean for investors? So I don't think that the renminbi, the US, the Chinese currency will become a reserve, a reserve currency. I don't think that's likely over the long term. But I think it's possible that over time, the US dollar gets chipped away at by digital currencies. All the central banks are creating central bank digital currencies. And uh, I don't think anyone really knows what's that, what that's going to do, but it could uh, begin to undermine the US dollar's kind of hegemony yeah. in the world. I mean, which has been, uh, I mean, I think you point out, has been in, in place since 1944 in Bretton Woods. Yeah, I, I mean, they replaced the pound in 1944. The pound was the reserve currency back then. The Brits basically were stuffed after the war and the, the, the Yanks took over. But I, th- I think logically there should be a currency called the global or just something, which all the key economies agree is the the central bank endorsed and parliamentary endorsed. Yeah, well, there was an attempt at that. Yeah. Uh, with uh, what was it called? Oh, Spanish word. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it never really got anywhere. And, and I mean, no, Bit- Bitcoin, it never will get anywhere. No, and Bitcoin is an attempt to break away from sovereigns being able to issue. But if you were the Americans, you'd never surrender this, would you? It's a bit like you know the fact that English is the de facto global language. And as long sure. as English is the de facto global language, and the US dollar is, then US hegemony is. Short, in, in short, and the, the, the euro would have made more inroads by now after all this time if there was a serious threat against the US dollar. Now, you've written Stephen to ask, yeah, but so it's my turn. Yeah, you know, your turn, Alan. Take over. This is regarding the question bagging you, though. Oh, it's bagging me. Oh, you better yeah, okay. do it. Okay, regarding Alan's Sunday night ABC News feature on the housing crisis, I felt Michael felt it was a touch misleading when comparing the number of short term and long term rentals. Firstly, short-term rentals are always online even when booked out compared to long-term ones only showing when available. But more importantly, the national figure isn't much use due to the concentration of where you would see Airbnbs. 500 short-term rentals in a tourist destination like Ellie Beach doesn't help a key worker in any of the capital cities. How many of the 300,000 would be of any use in this housing crisis? I'm not saying it's not a problem and I really dislike Airbnb at Elf, what they've done to communities, but I didn't think it was a very useful point. Alan, discuss. Well, I think it's, uh, that's a good point that I should have made, that the uh, short-term rentals are always online and the long-term rentals are only online when they're available. I think that's a good point that I hadn't thought of, and it's true. Uh, as to how many of the 300,000 uh, would be useful, maybe 100. Um, yeah. Uh, you know. And there's also grey areas. Like, we're, we've got a place at Phillip Island... Um, and we put it up for rent a year, well, March last year, and there were 11 bids within 24 hours, and it went to an international doctor working at a regional hospital. And we, and we were thinking, oh, you know, it's in, it's in Phillip Island, it's a holiday destination, it's going to be hard to rent. So with COVID, work from home, people prepared to travel, regionalisation, I actually think quite a few of those so-called holiday destinations are actually more viable rentals in a work-from-home environment. But look, it's a fair, you know, you've accepted the criticism from Michael, haven't you, Alan, to a degree? Oh, that, yeah, yeah, It was sure. a great piece, though. Did you get much reaction to it on the 
I heard uh, people talking about it on the radio. Oh, well, there you are. Yeah. I didn't hear that. No, no. But uh, no, I think it was you, – you do those big picture pieces very well and that was, I think, one of your better ones. Thank you very much. Your turn. Sean, my partner and I are tentative first home buyers wrestling with whether we can afford apartment, an apartment in an area we want to live in, but understand that traditionally apartments are not good investments. We would need to go way out to the cities to afford a house, but potentially that's a better investment. So the question is, are townhouses in a middling suburb a reasonable investment? Uh, up to a point. The best investments are freestanding houses. Because you get the uh, land. Because, because what goes up is land, buildings go down in value, land goes up in value. And so the more building you've got on your land, the yes. worse it is. Yes, although <laughs> I've noticed in Manningham, like council recently bought a property for $1.45 million that had a permit for five townhouses that had previously sold three years ago for $2.05 million. So the land value crashed by 600000 in three years because the cost of construction has gone through the roof and it was no longer economic to build a basement for five townhouses on a 900-square-metre block. So current built form is, is rising in value now because the cost of replacing is so ridiculously high. But overall, houses are best townhouses the next best and apartments traditionally unless you've got penthouses at the top of Barangaroo or something um, don't particularly soar in value because there's no land involved my, my son was um, uh, doing a piece the other day on on uh, 40 million dollar properties there was there were a couple of a couple of big you know one place in Turak and another one in uh, Bourne or Canterbury had gone on the market for 39 million dollars and another one uh, for $39 million was an empty apartment wow. um, in Latrobe Street. Wow. Um, yeah, for $39 million. Crikey. I, well, actually, I mean, it was a shell. It, was, it didn't even have any furniture in it. It didn't have, it didn't have a kitchen. I actually visited a $50 million apartment plus in Sydney and um, oh, it's just extraordinary. So it's just God, the way the other side live. Liam, anyway. Liam says, Stephen was arguing with Alan about increasing GST in last week's episode. Alan brought up the fact that GST is a regressive tax and that it will more heavily impact low-income earners, suggesting we need to increase taxes, income taxes instead. My question is, siding with Stephen, isn't GST a more guaranteed way of getting money from people? I feel any increases in the tax on the rich would just mean that they get more creative with their accounting to avoid it. The extra tax on the poor, on the poor through GST could be then offset with better welfare, as Stephen suggested. Suggest I would like to hear more discussion on this topic. Okay, well, we're happy to oblige with more discussion, Liam. Yes, Liam. Look, I do agree that the GST is hard to avoid, particularly if you put it on everything. The other famously difficult to avoid tax is property taxes because you can't put it on the ship and, uh, and move it away, unlike your, your $50 million cash pile. But look, you have to just look at the proportionality of this whole situation. So... Uh, I support, for instance, you know, we've got a very re progressive tax system. I mean, it's tax-free up until 18200 and then it's only 19% up until 45000 So anyone who's earning less than 45000 is paying very little tax. We've already got a very preferred system. I would prefer a 10% flat tax to 45000 and a 10% tax on inheritances above $3 million. And, you know, like 10% is a low rate of tax. So people shouldn't say it's massively regressive just to have a 10% GST when ours, as I said last week, is only 4.8% of GDP versus double in the OECD, I think. The other thing to remember, Liam, 
and Stephen is the tax reform of the talk we're talking of the sort we're talking about will never happen. I mean, it just uh, politicians will never do what that sort of thing, like introduce a ten percent uh, inheritance tax. Um, you know, uh, it's too hard. But they won't the secret do it. is bipartisanship. I mean, it's uh, it amazes me that people just like with gambling reform or anything, just the two leaders get together and go, "We've got a problem here." So if they both come out and go, look, we're both doing a 10% inheritance tax on everything worth more than $5 million, and you announce it five weeks before the election so start-up parties don't have a time to get traction, then it's policy. But Done. It's, but it's, it's collusion. It's duopoly collusion. Yeah, but of course, it's but, it won't ha- but it won't happen because it's, it's, the politics is too easy for the opposition. You know, it's just they, it's, it's, they're, they're all lazy. You know, this is easy politics. Well, no, Allegra Spender got it right. They just wedge each other. And, you know, rule in, rule out, all that rubbish. And then you just get policy inertia and lack of reform and populism. And it's quite no, deflating but, but, and fatiguing but, 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 to opposing, watch it. I'm just saying the opposing tax increases is just easy politics. And so they'll always do it. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in Manningham, I'd love to get rid of the flat rates we've got and, you know, put a 50% premium on commercial, give a discount to all the apartment holders who are getting flogged by body corporate fees as well. But as soon as you start playing with the balloon, the prop, you know, someone loses. So the problem with politics is the low losers mentality for the politicians yeah. and the power of the squeaky wheel to smash you into submission. I mean, I'm getting smashed at our local Macedon Square shopping centre over a, what should be a popular $3.5 million upgrade and I've had signs up and sack this bloke and we've had to cancel it and because the baker's angry about it. One baker running a one-man campaign to stop, you know, building a park and widening, narrowing the road and fixing the footpaths and making it safer and more beautiful. So, Yeah, but it's an outrage. politics, it's, a, it's hard to do anything. It's an outrage, come on. Come whatever, and, whatever it is, I'll come and doing. take you to Mass in the Square. Looking tired, needs an upgrade, and boy, jingles! I mean, I've never seen people so angry about it. Council spending three million fixing something up. So it's so, so much easier to do nothing, isn't well, it? Well, offer the three million to Tunstall Square or Jackson Court or some other more happy, accepting uh, local activity centre. Your turn. Okay, so Gareth, we're going back to Keating and submarines with Gareth. Uh, when I first heard the submarine announcement, I was shocked and found myself agreeing with Paul Keating. I was bemused to hear Richard Mars argue we're dependent on shipping and gave an example of us having only two oil refineries, so we need to import our fuel from Singapore. I'm just a simple Navy veteran, so I don't understand all this economic stuff. But last time I checked, we occupy our own continent with vast resources and a surplus of food. So if war broke out, we might not be able to get the latest iPhone, but surely we would mostly be fine. And $368 billion could probably buy a few oil refineries. What am I missing? Uh, I don't think he's missing much, actually. <laughs> I think he's... I mean, I agree with Paul Kenny too. I mean, China's not going to stop us getting oil from Singapore. Are they? No. Look, if... We are very trade exposed, but so are the Chinese. The Chi- and that was why Russia, what Russia did was the first time an internationally connected powerhouse declared war and risked having the, their arteries choked off by sanctions and and, yeah, and, that's, that's and it's, for- it's hurting them big time. Exactly. Depression in Russia. So, depression in Russia. So it's, it's, uh, it's not going well for them at all. So China's not going to do it. Well, but think about this, okay? So Chinese entities, government entities, have invested more than $100 billion in Australian resources, energy, infrastructure and agriculture. They're massively invested here. If we went in and just nationalised it and said, China, you're a disgrace, like we did with the Russians, where we stole 25% of that bauxite mine up in Queensland, we just said, we'll have that, thanks. 
if if we did that to the Chinese and took a hundred billion dollars of their Australian investments, I reckon they would invade to get their hundred billion back, right, and they'd do we, blockades. But, but and why all would we do stuff. that? Because then we'd be upset about them having uh, invaded Taiwan. So we would go, okay. Watch the Russian-Ukraine playbook. Yeah, but we steal assets of oligarchs <laughs> and companies and then we'd suddenly be freezing 100 billion of Chinese assets in Australia and then they wouldn't be too happy and they'd go, well, well, the, we'll choke off your petrol for now. Yeah, but the, but the Australian economy would then fall off the end of the earth because of, because of the lack of iron ore exports. Well, like in the Second you know, World War, we just so turn to the Americans to bail us out. That's, that's, I mean, I, I say save the money on the, on the nukes and, and, and just well, outsource the whole thing to America and say give us a guarantee and, and we won't even have a defence force. That's the better way for us to do it. We pretend well, we can have a defence force. Just, see, just you've pay always the been, angst, pay you've the always been such an extremist, Stephen. Have no defence force at all. I mean, what we're talking well, about we've got labour shortages. We need to deploy them on something productive. No, that's true. Not military exercises. What yeah. value does that add? Uh, Toby says, Alan, you've, all, you've said before that the economic reforms of the Hawke-Kitty government set Australia up for a period of strong economic growth through the 90s and early 2000s. I'm not sure that I'm the only one who's said that. But more recently, you've pointed out that economic growth was higher in the early 70s when taxes were high and the economic and the economy was more regulated. I'd be interested to know how you reconcile these views and what you now think about the legacy of tax cuts and deregulation started under the Hawke-Keating governments. Uh, well, I was really talking about uh, the top marginal income tax rate and I was simply pointing out that um, the proposition that cutting the top marginal income tax rate from... Uh, 66% as it was in the 60s to below 50% as it is now um, has not, as was proposed, led itself, led to increased economic growth. Um, There are lots of things that the Hawke-Keating government did, uh, apart from cutting the top marginal tax rate, um, uh, that have caused the um, improvement in economic growth, pro- yeah. improved productivity, lots of things. Yeah, I mean, they, they floated the dollar. The, the foreign bank competition was great. Sure. Compulsory super was great. Enormous. Tar- getting rid of tariffs was important. The That's Farmers right. Party were never going to do that with Fraser. So, uh, so it's look, there's plenty, plenty more things going on in the world than taxes, but the point, the point that I was trying to make was that um, there's no evidence that cutting the top marginal income tax rate uh, from the t- from two thirds, well, it started off at seventy five percent in nineteen fifty one. Uh, eventually, made it to under fifty percent. There's no evidence that that actually leads to higher economic growth. Um, no, but I fact, also challenge this supplies. line that you know, economic growth was higher in the seventies than the eighties and nineties. The 1970s was a terrible time for our economy. So, Stagflation, yeah. so shocks. I've, I've not said that. I've said it was strikes. the sixties. Yeah. The 60s. Yeah, so I was think the 70s the were, were higher. The 70s were a write-off. I mean, great for social reform, but Whitlam basically bankrupted the budget, and then Fraser was did nothing, and uh, and it wasn't a, my my late father used to always talk about the hellish economy in the 70s. You know, it was tough times, and and there's no doubt that Hawke and Keating were more competent economic managers than the best of whatever Whitlam and Fraser could serve up. Well, and uh, and subsequent governments. Oh no, Howard GST reform fixed the budget. I think that, that was ha- one thing that Howard no, did. No, he fixed the, the budget. One thing he, he got debt down What's to fifty-eight billion dollars. Who fixed the budget was China. Oh, it was commodity exports, not uh, the qualities of Howard and Costello. I would suggest Howard and Costello were better than Rudd Gillard as economic managers. Well, and, yes, that's and, not uh, hard. And uh, 
Yeah, and then we've been stuck with the trillion dollar debt ever since now. And so no one's been a good fiscal manager since Peter Costello in terms of uh, delivering genuine surpluses and paying off the debt. We've got time for one more question, Stephen. I was Marshall says, I was wondering what happens when someone like Elon Musk comes in to buy a company like Twitter. What exactly is he buying? Is he buying everyone's stockholding and taking the company private? And the answer is yes. He's That's exactly what's he, happening. He's done US $44 billion to buy the lot, but he's then done a secret, well, he's done a, a deal where he's had equity partners come in for a, quite a few billion. He's borrowed, you know, $15 billion from the banks or whatever, but the but shareholders got taken out because he offered such a stupid price, $54.40 a share. Uh, it's probably, how, how much do you reckon he's lost on it? Uh, I think it'd be if it was trading today, it'd on be paper. it'd be it'd be twenty. So I think, but but he's got bank debt. Oh, look, he's he's dropped probably twenty billion. Um, but when you're worth hundred and fifty, just a round of drinks, isn't it? So um, you know, when you got that much to lose, who cares? So, um, but, yes, but I think the, he, I hope he sells it to someone who can actually just be sensible. He's just done it as a power play. It's not making any money. He's mismanaging it, and uh, he's caused a massive recession in the tech sector because all the other tech companies have gone. Well, if Twitter can sack eighty percent of their staff and the website stays afloat, we've all can sack tens of thousands as well. So they all followed Twitter Musk's lead. They all sacked all these people. Of course, a recession in Silicon Valley, and then Silicon Valley Bank went broke. So there's been a lot of follow-on effects from from Trump's ego-driven takeover of Twitter. I'm blaming Trump for the lot. It and is. now he says, stop doing AI, like you talked about last week. I mean, why is he trying to stop AI? I don't know. He's, I don't know. All these people who want to stop stop progress. Well, because he's not in it He's not in it Yeah, anymore. well, he wanted he, to control it. And, got, AI, and, yeah. and now he's and out And he wanted it. to control it. He got thrown out. Now he's trying to stultify it, stop it. Yeah. So. Now, Alan, we're back together again next Thursday. So we've got... Eight days to uh, – I might have to beam in from the New South Wales south coast, actually, but we can talk about that. But uh, you need to read us out. And You're going on another road trip. Another road trip, yep. But now we never – all these US podcasts like Cara Swisher and Pivot, and they always read it out thanking everyone who helps out. So I would like to thank Greg Demopoulos, our wonderful producer, who's the editor, organiser, um, books the cafe, does everything, and also books thank InvestSmart – the owner of this company uh, that produces this. Without them, we wouldn't be here. In the person of Ron Hodge, CEO. Ron Hodge, CEO, regularly interviewed by Alan, uh, <laughs> well, coming off the long run with really hard, tough questions for his boss. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, Read us out, you Alan. got me there. Thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of The Money Cafe. We'll be back next week, Stephen and I. Uh, so send in the question and we'll answer it. Or not, depending on how many questions we get. Um, email to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report and uh, presenter on ABC News. And I'm Stephen Main, and we'll see you in eight days. 